Welcome back to CrimeFiction.fm, where we bring the authors of today's best mysteries and suspense novels directly to you. I'm your host, Stephen Campbell, and I'm here today with Catherine Hall Page, the multi-time Agatha Award-winning author of The Body in the Birches, the 22nd, and I can't believe I'm saying that, the 22nd book in the Faith Fairchild Mystery Series. Catherine, welcome. Well, thank you so much for having me. Can you believe this is the 22nd book in the series? No, I really can't, especially because um, I did not even know I was writing a series. Uh, the, the first book in the series, which is somewhere back in the Paleolithic era, was <laughs> The Body in the Belfry. Uh, let's see, it actually came out in 1989. And I just, you know, I assumed it was just a standalone mystery. And it wasn't until my editor, the legendary Ruth Cavan at St. Martin's Press, Ruth, who died a couple of years ago, was still editing at the Flatiron Building um, mm. well into her 90s. She was just extraordinary. And she said, when can we expect the next book in the series? And I thought, oh, oh okay. Um, I guess I'll write some more books about this Faith Fairchild. Um, but again, it just it, it is astonishing to me. Um, when we got to number 20, I thought, well, that, that's probably a good place to stop. But then I, I kind of wasn't ready to leave her. Um, and so we so here we are. I, I Looking now, maybe it's stopping at 25, but we'll see. I keep saying that, and, and I keep doing a couple more. So, Well, I came to the series in the second book, and it was recommended to me by someone, and I, I read it, and I just fell in love with the characters and the settings. It was just such a fabulous book for that, that the time that I was reading it, and I'm so thrilled to have you on as a guest now. So tell listeners who may not be familiar with the series— Tell us a little bit about Faith and, and her husband and the, the way you set the books sort of around the world almost. Well, sure. Um, well, first of all, just to finish up about the challenges of writing a, a long-running series is you, you need to keep it interesting to both readers and also for, for me as a writer to have a challenge. So I, I alternate um, the Aylford books because Faith Fairchild... Faith Sibley Fairchild, to give her her whole name, uh, grew up in Manhattan. And she is a caterer, and she's catering a wedding. And Tom Fairchild is down performing the ceremony for his college roommate and appears at the reception, but he has changed out of his clerical garb. Uh, and there is this instant chemistry between them. And before, you know, it's what the French call a coupe de foudre there. They've fallen in love. And it isn't until you know, sort of much later in that evening when she discovers what it is he does for a living. And this is, is something, a profession that she and her younger sister have vowed to avoid because they have grown up in a parish uh, mm -hmm. in Manhattan and, and on the east side, very nice, but still they know what this fishbowl existence is. Uh, but the heart has its reasons, and of course, so she ends up... So not only does she have to move out of her native Manhattan to New England, which is a stranger climb to her than, say, Paris, um, <laughs> but there she is in, you know, a minister's wife. So there, in the first book, I introduced all these elements 
for several reasons. First of all, I thought um, it would be, I grew up in northern New Jersey. I've been in New England since I came to college, again, back in the Paleolithic area in 1965. Uh, and I've lived here all my adult life, but I will always be an outsider. Mainers have a wonderful expression. They, they say that uh, a cat can have kittens in the oven, but it doesn't make them biscuits. So, <laughs> You know, I will always be from away, both here in Massachusetts and in Maine. And especially if you say you're from New Jersey, I mean, that's like, whoa, mm-hmm. <laughs> forget that. Um, so I, I thought it would be good for her to have an outsider perspective. And the whole business of being a minister's wife, I thought at the time it was playing against type, but um, it was to have that fishbowl existence. And I do get a lot of letters from clerical spouses saying, yeah, this is exactly what it is. I mean, people who would never make personal comments feel perfectly free to comment on the way, um, like in Faith's case, you know, that she is... Tom appears for service in mismatched socks or, you know, all sorts of or how she's raising her children or all sorts of things. The food thing, um, and what's interesting is that my friend Diane Mott-Davidson and I, our first books came out the same year from the same publisher. And Diane, of course, is the acclaimed author of the Goldie, <coughs> excuse me, the Goldie Bear series. And, um, and for people who aren't familiar, they're also you know, a cozy mystery and plenty of recipes and plenty of food. So it's kind of, and we both went to the same college. So, and we had no idea, we had, didn't know each other then. And we had no idea we were both writing these food mysteries. And there really weren't culinary mysteries at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I wanted to have her be a caterer because I liked to read mysteries, murder mysteries that had food in them. Um, and in particular, Virginia Rich, the late Virginia Rich, who, again, for all your listeners, if you are not familiar with her wonderful book, she only, she was an older woman, and it, and for anybody who uh, is thinking I'm, you know, too old to write a book or get published, you know, she, her career really, she didn't get published, I think, until she was in her 50s. Mm-hmm. Um, and and her sleuth, uh, Eugenia, is a, a woman of a certain age. I, I love these books. And she was really the first person, other than Rex Stout, many, many years earlier in Too Many Chefs, who put recipes in the books. Uh, and then there are all the, you know, Who's Killing the Great Chefs of Europe. There, there are classic mysteries, but there really were not a whole lot of mysteries, in fact, other than Diane writing at that time, you know, where there was food in the mysteries. Uh, the danger is, and I eventually started putting recipes in after the fourth book, because I thought, you know, Virginia Rich, who was still alive, you know, she was doing that. And it seemed like borrowing more than a cup of sugar from her. Right. Uh, so, and I want so, but, but eventually Ruth Cavan said to me, well, you know, I think people are doing this, Catherine, you ought to do this. And people were writing to me for the recipes and I was mailing them out. So we did them, but I told her I wanted them to be at the end of the book. Um, because a lot of people, my best friend says, great book, too much food in it as usual. <laughs> interested in food. Uh, and I didn't want them to interrupt the narrative so that Faith stumbles across a badly bludgeoned body and there's a brownie recipe. So 
you know, so those are all the elements. And in a way, it is like a recipe that I thought about when I was writing the first book. I wanted it to be a puzzle mystery in the tradition of Agatha Christie, you know, Dorothy Sayers, all those greats. Um, I wanted an amateur sleuth. Um, just because that just felt more natural to me. And, you know, and I wanted it to have a kind of an edge, some humor to it, although there's nothing remotely funny about murder. At but, what point yeah. did did you become a, a cozy writer? Because you're obviously describing the traditional mystery, but I don't, I don't know when the term cozy mystery actually came into vogue. Well, I will tell you, because okay. it's, a, it's a particular hobby horse for some of us. <laughs> um, now... Of course, there are all these wonderful sites with cozy mm-hmm. in, in them, uh, but a lot of us prefer to be called, you know, trad- that we're writing a, a traditional mystery, mm-hmm. because cozy was, in fact, a term of derision um, that was in, an, in a very famous, now I'm going to block on his name, but um, I can I try to remember before the end of the interview. Um, he wrote a, a absolutely just hammering home that you know these uh, horrible, horrible mysteries, these cozies in which more tea is spilt than blood. Uh, you know that these weren't really mysteries, uh, and uh, really deriding the whole thing, and so that you know for a long time the term cozy was used as a a term of derision of criticism. Mm-hmm. Um, and the same thing with soft-boiled. That was another term. You know, these weren't really fully cooked somehow. They weren't, like, hard-boiled. Um, now, I read all kinds of mysteries. I, I read hard-boiled, you know, the whole, what I call the guy in the trench coat mysteries. Um, you know, Dennis Lehane is one of my favorite writers. Uh, all, you know, I read everything except... You know, the really kind of Patricia Cornwell, the really sort of ones that have too much body mutilation and serial killing and everything. I, don't, I can't read those. They're too real. But, um, but Cozy, is, you know, but uh, I think Margaret Marin, who is, writes the wonderful, her bootlegger's daughter, that wonderful uh, series that's set in North Carolina, we, a couple of years ago, we said, well, you know, we really have to give in and just... And and just wear this cozy mantle with pride and okay, but a lot of writers who write what we would call cozies call it the c word. <laughs> well, it's funny. I I'm a guy, yeah. and I always assumed I I not only didn't read cozies, I would never read a cozy, and I I had this image of them as just uh, you know sort of the c word kind of thing something that yeah, no uh, no like, no uh, real mystery reader would ever read yeah. and then i was prepping for an interview like a year and a half ago with a cozy writer and i started looking at other people who were considered cozy writers and some of them were among my favorite authors and i'd read hundreds of books that could be defined as cozy. So I I sort of look at it differently. And a lot of times I just refer to the, to the the whole genre as traditional mysteries. And that upsets some people as well. Oh, well, you know, you feel free to do that because the other thing is that once um, there became, 
again, a, a little a little history here. Uh, at the time that I was writing, uh, there were there was this sudden. Uh, my friend, I have a friend, uh, Valerie Wolzing, um, who is a writer, and she did a very long, too long series, and. Um, before she decided to kind of hang it up, uh, I think, what did she do? Something like 36 books, I think, you know, mm-hmm. you can very well stop after that. But we were talking because, we, again, we pl- were there, right place, right time. At that point, there suddenly publishers, thanks to people like Sue Grafton, Sarah Paretsky, Marsha Muller were saying, well, gee, you know, maybe we really need to have more female mystery writers on our lists. Uh, and so they really began looking for female mystery writers. Uh, so we were there right on the cusp of, of that. And, um, and it really, the explosion of female mystery writers, and particularly in what's now called the cozy genre, you know, that, that came slightly later. Um, but, you know, we feel very lucky that we were in this place where we were at that time, and that this is what publishers were looking for. But publishers also like to be able to have, you know, these niche marketing. So mm-hmm. my books have been marketed first by St. Martin's and now by Harper Collins as um, uh, culinary mysteries. At one point, they were even described as clerical mysteries. I I very purposefully make the Reverend Thomas Fairchild's religion, a kind of amalgam of a bunch of Protestant religions, because I didn't want any of them coming after me, you know, like the Presbyterian <laughs> saying, no, this is not what we do, you know, so uh, it's not a particularly recognizable religion, it's got elements of um, of the Episcopal Church, the, you know, it's, I call it, you know, it's first parish, that's, most New England towns have a first parish, which is either a UCC church or a UU church, so, you know, you can kind of fudge it a little bit. Um, so, and then eventually they began marketing them at, as cozies, and it's only been the last couple of years that they're now reverting back to traditional mystery, <laughs> because they do want to reach a broader audience. Mm-hmm including, you know, guys. Although I am always amazed at how many men are fans of mine. I'm always happy and amazed. There was a time in my life, we had one of our sons was in Afghanistan. And the last thing I needed was to read something that was going to get my heart beating really fast at night. So I, at that point, I made a conscious decision to go away from thrillers and to focus more on traditional mysteries. And that's when I really started getting into this genre and just finding just some like you, people that are just great storytellers, and oh, you, you don't need all the blood and guts and, and some of the other things to tell a really good story. And, and the idea of solving the puzzle along with the sleuth is it's just a lot of fun. Yeah. I mean, you want the suspense to be there. I kind of think of it as, you know, the, I keep you on the seat of your chair for a little while, and then I give you a bit of a break there. You yes. know, so, so they're different from other kinds of mysteries in that. Um, I know my books are very popular in hospital gift shops and airports, you know, any things where people want something, at, just as you say, and, and that pleases me enormously. Um, my own son, my son is a civilian contractor for the Air Force, um, so we're an Air Force family, and mm-hmm. I, uh, you know, we send the books uh, 
to, you know, very, to Afghanistan, you know, in boxes that are prepared on base. And, uh, and that's great. You know, I'm just, I'm really happy about that. But, um, you also should take a look at, at the vintage mysteries that Rumorg Press, if you go online or if you go to my website and click on the link for Rumorg Press, because those vintage mysteries, uh, Craig Rice, who was actually a woman, um, but she had to write under a male pseudonym, um, those are, th- these are just fabulous traditional mysteries. and. Mm-hmm. Of course, as we mentioned, Agatha Christie, Dorothy Sayers, all of those people. Uh, but you know, it's um, it's a it's a challenge to introduce the the murder and the suspense um, without. I don't. I there isn't any graphic violence, um, and that's just uh, that's just the way. I view the world. It's just too, you know, it's, we are now uh, in the sentencing phase of the Boston bomber trial. Mm -hmm. And, you know, just the news is unrelenting and it's important. You know, I read the paper every day and, and listen to the news on the radio. And like you, I just, I don't want to be reading it too in a novel. All right. Well, let's talk. Let's let's transition now. We, we've got a pretty good understanding of the characters. Let's transition. Give us a, a, a brief overview of the uh, of the storyline for the twenty second book in the series, "The Body in the Birches." Okay, and I should say that that the entire backlist is in print. Yes, it is. <laughs> yes, and you know this is the kind of thing that an author every morning when you get up, you know, you just give thanks uh, for that because that's that means that people that they're accessible for people. I also wrote um, a Christie and Company a series of four books for middle grade readers for younger readers, and I I did a YA and I have a series cookbook that collected all the up to that time the recipes in the book and some little essays about food and crime and mm-hmm. food that is a crime and all sorts of things that's called have faith in your kitchen i apologize oh. for the terrible title clever but in the body and the birches it's again i i put i created this massachusetts town that is a a kind of the size of a town called Carlisle, which is west of Boston, small town, but yet it has a lot of elements of Lexington, Concord, uh, other places. I, I wanted a fictitious town, again, so that I didn't have people saying, oh, I know, although they always do say, I know who that is, and it's always someone I've never heard of or known. Um, so I alternate those Alford books with the Someplace Else books, and a whole bunch of them have been on this island called, that I created, Sampere Island, mm-hmm. which is really Deer Isle, Maine, in Penobscot Bay, um, about five hours north of Boston. So in The Body and the Birches, this is now, let's see, I guess the fourth one? Two, yeah, the fourth one that is set there. Uh, the Body and the Kelp, as you mentioned, that was the first one set on Sampere. Um, and what I'm exploring in this book is something that I... Aside from the whole mystery plot, all of those different elements, um, Faith is really interested in looking at what's going on below the surface, especially in families. Um, and in this book, it has all has to do with inheritance. And one of the things that 
that I read about that spurred me to think about this was um, the whole Brooke Astor business with the son and you know I mean he was extremely rich but yet still you know he there were all these machinations in order to get her big Bar Harbor property um, and thinking back to um, families I knew and um, people I knew I realized that a an estate the size of Brooke Astor's, this very wealthy woman, um, was as contentious as who was going to get grandma's cameo, you know, that it didn't really have anything to do with the monetary amount or anything, but that it was just the emotion involved in, in these things. Uh, so this book is about a family, the Proctor family, and they have, uh, in Maine, they're referred to as cottages, but they're really kind of <laughs> arcs, arcs of places that are huge, um, that they, the rusticators, these sort of like the, um, the Roosevelts, you know, who love to have these freezing cold swims and, you know, sailing and so forth. Of course, they all came with servants, but anyway, there are these big old places from the turn of the 20th century and it's been in this Proctor family but the there's no immediate line no immediate heir so um, the family any the family is called together these nieces and nephews and even a cousin uh, and for almost like an audition for the this elderly man the the widower whose wife had been the owner uh, to decide who is going to inherit because they are, it's they don't want it it's not she didn't want it to be broken up um, and it had to be somebody who wanted it who could maintain it and all of that so they so this comes now they all desperately want it for all different reasons um, and the book follows the course of that decision making which obviously turns deadly um, <laughs> as happily these things usually don't but sometimes do um meanwhile faith fairchild her her actual cottage cottage small is being worked on and so she is staying with an elderly woman next to this the birches is the name of the of this property in question she's conveniently staying near there so that she can get involved in all of the sleuthing um but I, I just, there's a lot of, in the subplot, um, that has to do with, um, with really just the kinds of relationships in a family that can, that can lead in this extreme, you know, to murder, but also that just, um, I, I have as the epigraph in the beginning, I, I have, I mean, you could use Oscar Wilde quotes, you know, virtually <laughs> anything. Um, and I use, after a good dinner, one can forgive anybody, even one's own relations. Um, so that's sort of the thing that follows through. And she's, her children are teenagers now, and, you know, there's all of that kind of um, angst. Um, oh, and, you know, I have to, I, I try to get Tom, the husband, off stage because I don't, I don't have a Nick and Nora thing going here. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's his mother is conveniently having heart trouble, and he he's always to, busy. He's always busy he's somewhere a, else. He's always somewhere else because you know that's it, it, it makes it. I the first I should say with the very first book I did not realize and um, 
Haycroft wrote in the, I guess it was in the late 1930s, these famous rules for writing mysteries. Mm -hmm. Oh, Google it. Howard Haycroft, H A Y C R O F T, um, that uh, what how to write a mystery and what shouldn't be in them and what some of them are really terrible, like no Chinaman. I mean, it just it's just really really very un PC now. Um, but one of the things you're not supposed to do is have children in the in a mystery, and. Um, you know, I obviously hadn't read the rules because it seemed that for her, she has a baby in the very first book. In fact, she discovers the still warm body of a parishioner in the old belfry with the baby strapped to her in a snuggly, rings the bell, and there's more controversy over her ringing this bell in the historic belfry than, you know, the murder itself. But that's a whole other story. But, um, you know, so it... The, she always has to think about child care and, you know, she can't just pursue a hot lead and, and leave her kids unattended. And fortunately, I gave her a very convenient neighbor who does a lot of the minding for her. But you still, because it seemed to me at that time, and I remember my very first speaking engagement was to a book group of young mothers in, a, in Winchester in a town near us um, and they were so obviously very happy just to get out of the house and they this was quite a different book group, they had wine and they, they were having a great time um, and they said they could really identify with Faith because they, even though they weren't stumbling across bodies you know, they had all these different constraints and um, much as they loved their children, you know, at times they were an impediment uh, so that it just seemed like Faith and Tom, you know, at that stage in their life, they'd have a kid, uh, and there would be complications. And most people I know had complications. It just wasn't dead bodies. That's all. And as someone who's been happily married for a long time, I always enjoy. They're they're so rare. The the, the books or series that have a happily married couple at the center. So even if, even though Tom spends time off screen, uh, th- their marriage is good. It's it's not something yep. that you look at. They're they're not chasing around other people or anything. It's it's a good solid marital relationship, and it's fun to read about those things. I think I think it is. I did give them a, in the body in the attic. You, you I think you would like that one. There there's a kind of a little crease there in the body in the attic. Um, Tom uh, has taken a sabbatical because he's trying to figure out, you know, whether he wants to continue in a parish ministry or does he want to um, do a street ministry in Boston, work with the homeless. And, you know, so he, he, they go off and they house it in Cambridge, Massachusetts for the year. Um, and Faith runs into, in very unusual circumstances, uh, a, an old bow, a very intense old bow. And um, and so that book, you know, there's a lot about that their marriage is not shaky, but I mean, there are definitely some issues going on mm-hmm. there. But I mean, I've been married, happily married for 40 years. So I think that that's one of the things, I mean, I don't really want to write about, um, you know, unhappy marriages or I don't want to write as my main character is about unhappy people. There are a lot of unhappy people in my books, but there it's not faith and 
And the cast of characters, oh, I should say, that's the other great thing about writing a series, is that it's like having an ensemble troupe in the theater where you've got, I've got this basic cast of characters who are in every book, obviously, Faith, Tom, the kids. Mm -hmm. Um, But then there are people who are in some books and not in others. I can bring them on, um, take them off, um, you know, the neighbors, the millers, the uh, Ursula, um, the mother of the next door neighbors and you know and now now i'm actually the book is set both in alford and in savannah georgia because sophie maxwell who is introduced in the body in the Burgess, a young woman in her 20s um she becomes kind of a sidekick for faith and i became very fond of sophie and i thought i would like to just write about sophie some more so She's a great character. I really think I am. So I'm immersed in Sophie, who is now living in Savannah. um, And Faith, of course, is up in the cold northeast. But um, but they I like the interaction between the two of them. So one of the things, again, the first book and it was at that that mother's book group. Uh, it had never occurred to me, my characters seem real to me, but it had never occurred to me that they would be so real to other people. Uh, because these women were asking me questions like, is Faith going to have another baby? As if this were someone who <laughs> was, you know, lived near them. Um, and uh, see, and that's something that authors just don't understand about those of us who are lifelong readers. <laughs> these uh, characters are real. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, when I read a book, I'm, you know, I'm there. I'm in the book. It's mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, Ruth Cavan again. I at one point I asked her, um, you know, why she had selected the body in the Belfry. It was, uh, you know, this. I, I I really feel apologetic at times because I I never went through all that rejection stuff um, because the book sold right away and and then you know the Agatha and all of that. But I asked her, you know, what was it about the book? And um, and she said, well, she said, you know, I can always fix plot, which was great news because that's very hard to do. And she said, but I cannot supply an author with voice. And you had a distinctive voice. And that's the best summation I've ever heard. I mean, you you know when you pick up a book, you know, what that voice is. And Mm -hmm. if it isn't ring true, you know, you're not going to finish reading it or even get into it very far. Well, for for people who have been listening to this and have heard your voice for the last several minutes, uh, what's the best way for them to to keep up with your work, to see what you're working on next, and to see this incredible backlist that you have? Okay, well, I have a terrific website, www.katherine-hall-page-page.com. Org, and then I am on Facebook. Yes, you are. And I will link to both your Facebook page oh, and you. your author page in the show notes so that people can find those at the easier to spell crimefiction.fm. Catherine, this has been a lot of fun. I really appreciate your time today. Okay. All right. Lovely to speak with you. This is Stephen Campbell for crimefiction.fm. You can find us on iTunes and on the web at www.crimefiction.fm. If you are an iTunes listener, please subscribe and give us a rating or a review. Those will help other crime fiction readers find great new books like The Body in the Birches from Catherine Hall Page. Thanks for listening.